today on Thoracic Oncology Assembly podcast, we have Dr. Daniel Sturman, who will be talking to us about using IP as a pathway to leadership. Dr. Sturman is the current division director of NYU Pulmonary and Critical Care. He's a professor in the Department of Cardiothoracic Surgery at NYU Grossman School of Medicine, and he's also the director of the Pulmonary Oncology Program at NYU. He did his MD at Cornell and subsequently trained in internal medicine, pulmonary critical care, and interventional pulmonary at the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome. Thanks, Mark. Good to be here. Okay, so there's possibly a lot of people who are interested in careers in interventional pulmonary that maybe don't really know the origin story of a lot of interventional pulmonary in the United States. So do you want to give a brief background to how you ended up in interventional pulmonary? Uh, I think it's a really interesting story. And for me, it's a story of serendipity, really. I was a medical student at Cornell. I was really undecided between medicine and surgery. I, I really love the hands-on approaches of surgery and what you could do to help people immediately. But I love the inquisitive and investigational aspects of internal medicine and really was undecided. I ended up doing some internships of both, ultimately decided on internal medicine and thought I was going to go into a procedurally oriented field in internal medicine. But at that time, and I'm dating myself, interventional cardiology was still in its infancy. At that time, this was before drug-eluting stents existed, in fact, before coronary stents existed at all. And we were just doing balloon angioplasty at that time. I say we, I was I was not involved in it, but that's what medicine was doing. It didn't really interest me. And GI was, I think, early on in their approaches to therapeutic endoscopy. And um, I didn't really know much about pulmonary. I was attracted to the field through the ICU like most of us. Um, as a resident, I could not get a pulmonary consult rotation at the main hospital. And so I ended up at one of the satellite hospitals at Penn with my first mentor in the field of international pulmonology, who was a guy, who is a guy uh, named Michael Unger. Mike uh, had been at Fox Chase Cancer Center uh, originally and then had moved to Pennsylvania Hospital, the first hospital in the United States. And he was the first to perform a NDAG laser bronchoscopy in the United States. He had brought this over from France where he had trained in, in medical school. And so unbeknownst to me, I ended up on what I thought was a routine pulmonary consult rotation. And my first day uh, rotating as a second year resident on pulmonary medicine at Pennsylvania Hospital was performing a laser bronchoscopy or observing Dr. Unger performing a laser bronchoscopy using a flexible scope on a patient with an endobronchial carcinoid tumor, which he ended up through a series of three different procedures definitively treating so the patient did not end up needing surgery. And this blew me away. And I, didn't, I wanted to know how I could do this how I could train to do this, where I could train how to do this, uh, and how to incorporate this into my career. And I wasn't yet even uh, a pulmonary fellow. And so this was the genesis. And again, life is off, often about who you meet and what they're doing and how it stimulates you. And I, I knew nothing about this field. There was no field of interventional pulmonology at the time. There were no fellowship programs at the time when I went through this. And I went to through the application process for pulmonary critical care fellowships, asking would they train me in rigid bronchoscopy, in thoracoscopy, in using lasers. Self-expandable metallic stents had just been developed. At that time, the only stents that were being used were silicone stents. I asked around, no one in the United States was training anyone. And everyone said, if I wanted to train, I had to go for at least a year to Marseille. And I was newly married and that was not going to happen. And so to make a long story short, I ended up as a second year resident going to the chief of thoracic surgery at Penn 
and asking him if I served as a thoracic surgery fellow for a year, would he train me in thoracoscopy and in rigid bronchoscopy? Uh, this is Dr. Larry Kaiser, who ended up as the Dean of Temple School of Medicine re relatively recently. And Dr. Kaiser, I think, reluctantly agreed to take me on, but I think he assumed that I wouldn't show up. And then at the start of my second year of pulmonary critical care fellowship at 5.30 in the morning on July, whatever it was in that year, I showed up on the thoracic surgery service uh, as one of their rotating fellows. And in exchange for being part of that service, at that time, before there were fellowships, uh, was trained by the thoracic surgeons in these endoscopic techniques in the plural space and in the airway. Since that time, clearly there's been a lot of evolution, a lot of different fellowship programs have started. How do you have you seen the kind of position of an interventional pulmonologist kind of evolve in a lot of institutions? Like everyone seems to have a different model. Sure. So uh, we started at University of Pennsylvania, the I think it was the third overall interventional pulmonary fellowship in the United States. I think the first was at the BI Deaconess with Armin Ernst. Uh, the second was at the Leahy Clinic. And the third was at Penn. And at that time, it was uh, the third or fourth year of a standard critical care fellowship. There was no application process. Uh, it was by word of mouth. And the field at that time was almost exclusively palliative. It was managing central airway obstruction and malignant pleural effusion and benign, we so call them benign, but they're hardly benign tracheal stenosis and tracheal malacia. The field of diagnostics was at its infancy. This was in 1996, 1997. So endobronchial ultrasound did not exist, certainly not in the United States, uh, neither linear nor radial probe. The big advance at that time was dissemination of what Copen Wong had developed in Baltimore at the Johns Hopkins affiliate, which was what we now call blind uh, TBNA, which is a lost art. And very few people were doing that in the United States and none in my institution. And so what we brought besides the palliative techniques was the ability to stage the mediastinum using what's now called standard TBNA techniques. And then again, this is another piece of serendipity. Dr. Unger, my first mentor, was close friends with Copen Wong, and took me down to Baltimore to learn standard TBNA directly from Dr. Wong. And brought, I brought those techniques back uh, to the University of Pennsylvania. So that's what the field was. And in 2001, I wrote a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is a review article, and we made up the name uh, Interventional Pulmonology for that article. I don't think it existed before that. I'm not giving myself a pat in the back. We just decided we needed a cool name for the title of the review article. And there was no title for the field, the, the, the journal at that time. And our association it was the American Association of Bronchology. And the journal was the Journal of Bronchology. And we realized that we were a lot more than bronchology because we did, a, especially at Penn, we were doing a lot of plural work. And so interventional cardiology had become very popular. And so I thought, couldn't we make up a name that would encompass all of what we did and not just bronchology. And so that's where the name interventional pulmonology came from, at least in my mind, which was we needed to title this review article for the New England Journal, something that would encompass all of what interventional bronchoscopists and pleurologists were doing at that time in early 2000s. So for me, I, I grew up as a junior attending as the field was evolving and had to, had to learn all of these new techniques in real time, specifically the diagnostic techniques. 
So when first radio probe ultrasound came into being and we were trying to identify lymph nodes using the balloon sheath on the radial probe before linear anabarctal ultrasound, I had two young kids. And so my fellow and junior faculty member, Ali Musani, who now is at the University of Colorado, um, I sent him to Japan uh, to first learn radial probe ultrasound and bring that back, studying with Noriaki Kuramoto in Kawasaki, and then to study linear ultrasound, endobarctal ultrasound, also in Japan. And then we also realized that our rigid bronchoscopy volumes needed to be higher. And so we developed a relationship with the Centre de Lazare in Marseille. And all of our fellows would spend at least a month training in the program with Dr. Professor Dumont and uh, learn from the premier rigid bronchoscopist in the world. So we realized that our training program had to be more than what we could just teach at the University of Pennsylvania. We had to expose our fellows to the best in the world because these techniques were being developed in real time. And so I couldn't just learn from a course. We wanted to learn from the people who are the masters who are developing those techniques, bring it back to the University of Pennsylvania. And ironically, in a sort of reverse training, my fellows would go to France and Japan, bring back new techniques and teach me. And I was the head of interventional pulmonary. And so it was a great way to build team camaraderie and a lot of democracy among the team because we were all working together. The fellows, the faculty, the leadership were all learning in real time. Do you think America now is, is a leader in interventional pulmonary um, or we're still acquiring skills from overseas? I think things have changed in part because of legal issues. I mean, it used to be very, very easy for American pulmonologists to train abroad, especially in Marseille, for example, or in Brussels or any of the major centers in Germany to learn these techniques. I think it's a lot more difficult to get hands-on experience now. Uh, the same to some degree is true in Japan. And so I think that one thing is we, we can go and observe, but we can't get hands-on experience anymore. I think Americans, we're, we're enamored with uh, technology, and I think that we like the newest technology. And so we certainly are advanced, for example, in robotics across the world that may be putting the cart before the horse because there has been a rapid expansion in robotics before we've had a lot of robust data showing that it's actually worthwhile to invest in and that it's better than other technologies. Now, I hearken back to a great paper from Gerard Silvestri and his team written by one of his fellows, which was a meta-analysis about 11 years ago when um, electromagnetic bronchoscopy was first developed, showing that the outcomes were really no better than well-done radioprobe ultrasound with guide sheet. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think we have to be very careful as Americans. We do love new technologies. We love really expensive technologies, but we have to also remember to prove that they're better than the technologies that already exist for which we're well-trained. So you have a couple of hats at the moment so in your leadership roles and as your clinical roles, but how do you view as a division director interventional pulmonary within your own department? Well, I think one of the hard lessons uh, that I learned first running an interventional pulmonary program and now as a division director is that interventional pulmonology by itself doesn't bring in a lot of money to an institution. And so you have to be creative in how you justify the role of interventional pulmonology. And I think that for a variety of ways, we can prove ourselves to an institution, but also uh, this has to be through multidisciplinary approaches. So for example, uh, I don't think you can run a cancer center now without having well-trained interventional pulmonologists for both the palliative as well as the diagnostic aspects. I, I think we've proved ourselves invaluable and even more so because interventional pulmonologists are pulmonologists and 
now the treatments that we give, whether it's targeted therapies for lung cancer or immunotherapy for any malignancy, many of which have pulmonary complications. And I think as interventional pulmonologists, if we're working in cancer center environments, we should be well-versed in the diagnosis and management of pulmonary complications of oncologic therapies. And I think that's also one way to prove our value to the institution. And most institutions value their cancer centers, which do bring in a lot of revenue. The other way is to bind together with other groups that care for patients with lung cancer. Lung cancer care obviously brings in a lot of revenue to an institution. And so binding together uh, in a service line with thoracic surgeons, with radiation oncologists, with medical oncologists, so that you all are seen as a seamless team and caring for the patient is very important. And it goes back to our role in the cancer center, although this can expand, expand beyond cancer to benign airways disease, parenchymal lung disease, really the, the fact that in order to have a uh, panoply of diagnostic services for patients with lung disease, interventional pulmonologists are, are invaluable. And I think we can also show that by being conscious of cost effectiveness, we can show ways that we can save money for an institution. And this is, for example, our role in the intensive care unit by being able to do tracheostomies in an expedited fashion at the bedside using percutaneous techniques, sometimes concomitantly with percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy tubes and get people out of the ICU or get them off the ventilator more quickly because we're able to do this within a matter of a day from the ICU team requesting it. So the roles that we play in trying to decrease the utilization in the ICU to improve the quality of the care, the rapidity of care for those patients, I think can prove a, a benefit to the institution. So it's not just revenue generation, it can be cost savings for the institution. And then obviously to a community, I think many interventional pulmonologists are interested in lung cancer screening. And aside from smoking cessation, perhaps the greatest impact that uh, any pulmonologist can have on outcomes of lung cancer would be to be involved in lung cancer screening operation because we can decrease lung cancer specific mortality by 20% by screening appropriate populations. And I think that for uh, the inter increased interest from interventional pulmonologists in pulmonary nodule access, means that we're, the, we're probably the optimal people to be actively involved in a screening program that's going to detect a lot of nodules, knowing that the vast majority of those nodules are going to prove to be benign. And they're going to need our assistance in either evaluating the serial imaging along with radiology uh, and or diagnostic procedures to safely determine which lesions are malignant and which are benign. Different models that I've just seen of interventional pulmonary some Departments are very much under pulmonary and critical care. Other people seem to have nearly dual appointments under thoracic surgery and pulmonary. Do you have an opinion on which functions better or? Depends what you're talking about. Functions better for the interventional pulmonologist, functions better for the institution. I'm biased now. I'm a division director leading a pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine division in a department of medicine. And I have an interventional pulmonary program, a robust and growing program under our rubric. So I'm biased, Mark. I think that's the best setup. Where we struggle is resource, right? So if you're within the Department of Medicine and you're in a pulmonary division, we're resource limited as opposed to being in a Department of Cardiothoracic Surgery where they are revenue generators for the entire institution. So the perception of the department is different the perception, not the perception, the reality of monies that you can use for training, for education, for buying new equipment is going to be different. Someone from a cardiothoracic surgery department 
who wants a new robotic bronchoscopy system is going to be much more likely to get that than someone who's working in an IP program housed in a department of medicine. It's just the reality of any institution. So I think from an academic perspective, it works far better in a department of medicine and a division of pulmonary and critical care. I think from a resource perspective, it may work better leveraging uh, the heft of the cardiothoracic surgery or the thoracic surgery division in an institution that probably has more leverage than, than a pulmonary division does. We were interested in your experience of moving through pulmonary medicine and interventional pulmonary into leadership. And um, do you think uh, interventional pulmonary is a good pathway to leadership opportunities, especially even in general pulmonary and critical care? I didn't think that way historically. There weren't a lot of role models when I started to look into division chief jobs uh, as an interventional pulmonologist. I think that there's a bias, honestly, in the pulmonary critical care academic community. The interventional pulmonologists are the proceduralists, the plumbers, that they're not very intellectual, that most of the literature published in the interventional pulmonary field historically before the last decade certainly was kind of like surgical literature. Our last 300 EBUSes, our last 300 plural procedures, we hadn't just worldwide over the, you know, before the last decade really been involved in developing well-designed, well-run randomized controlled trials of new technology. Uh, and I think we've developed that. That's changed in the last 10 years. I will also say that one of the ways I think you may be getting to this in a minute is to tie yourself in uh, to getting to a leadership position is to have a more academic bent. For me, that was translational research. So it wasn't necessarily developing RCTs and new technologies. It was how does one combine interventional pulmonary procedures with molecular therapeutics, with immunotherapeutics, and working together with people in the basic and translational sciences, both in oncology and in pulmonary medicine and thoracic surgery. So for me, that was the other piece of serendipity, which was landing up in a laboratory that was a translational research laboratory dedicated to developing new therapies for patients with thoracic malignancies and really being trained on the fly in real time in that area simultaneously with developing an interventional pulmonary program. So I had an, an academic outlet besides just building a procedural team at the same time. And I think that's key. If, you, if you're interested in leadership, you have to have something that gives you a special niche. You can't just say, I'm really good at bronchoscopy and therefore I should lead a pulmonary division. You have to have something different that makes you unique and you have to have published and have experience in that. I will say that none of that guarantees you being a good leader and I do think there's something about being at the head of a bed in an operating room for a patient with essential airway obstruction who's desaturating and you have to keep calm and you have to orchestrate what goes on in the room to make sure that you can get that patient safely through that therapeutic procedure, which may be as harrowing as any medical procedure that an, a physician and a patient can potentially go through. There is something to be said for the leadership that develops for, by having to put together that team in the endoscopy suite or the operating room. And this is why many surgeons become leaders. I think it's why interventional pulmonologists do have the capacity to be good leaders because we have to sort of know how to put together a hybrid career, how to work with people from other divisions and departments. So you have to know the politics of your institution. You have to have good emotional intelligence to deal with others and to know when not to stop on others' toes, but also when to stand up for yourself. And I think that if you're part of a group studying lung cancer or another thoracic malignancy or plural disease, and you've been academic, I think that you can show that this is a value to the greater medical community. And then 
express that as you're interviewing for a position. So I think there are some unique aspects to interventional pulmonary that do lend themselves to leadership, whether it's leadership of an IP program itself or to a pulmonary division or even potentially a department of medicine or a school of medicine. I think that we're just scratching the surface as interventional pulmonologists and exploring this area. I think there are probably now six or seven interventional pulmonologists that are leading pulmonary divisions across the country. And I think that number is growing. And I think that the key is that we have to have the respect of our colleagues by making sure that we're really serious about the educational and the academic portions of our enterprise, not just the administrative portions of our enterprise. We have to be committed to education broadly and what that means in educational initiatives. And we have to be dedicated to academics, uh, to well-conducted research, and to, for example, trying to ensure that interventional pulmonology is a field in which there is NIH funding. We don't have that many individuals who are interventional pulmonologists who have K awards or R01s or larger grants. We need to be part of those because our colleagues in other uh, lung cancer and other uh, plural disease related areas are involved uh, in these types of NIH-funded efforts. If we want to be successful, we have to show that we can play in that sandbox as well and be competitive. And we haven't really shown that historically. How do you think that'll evolve? Like, Because a lot of people I know that have done those kind of things have moved more into industry and have moved out of interventional pulmonary. So how do you think, as a group, the interventional pulmonary community kind of fosters that? Well, I know that uh, there have been a number of initiatives that have occurred. One of the most major initiatives was one that Lonnie Armis and others started with the IPOD group, which is the uh, Interventional Pulmonary Outcomes Group, which is a group of clinical researchers in interventional pulmonology at multiple centers across the U.S. that are interested in answering fundamental questions in interventional pulmonary. They may not be the sexiest questions, but they're important questions. Is cryobiopsy for interstitial lung disease a worthwhile endeavor? And does it compare to surgical lung biopsy in terms of both outcome and risk to the patient? What is the best way to perform an endobronchial ultrasound procedure? How many passes do you need? I mean, these are not the questions that I'm trying to answer. I'm answering more fundamental translational questions, but they're very important to the interventional pulmonary community. And they're the types of studies that interventional cardiology and GI have been asking for many years we had not been doing these. So the advent of a, a large group that's doing these types of collaborative multi-center clinical trials is exceedingly important. And then I think that our interventional pulmonologists have to collaborate with scientists to help answer some of the fundamental translational questions. You know, we have access to tumors, to lymph nodes, to pleural fluid, and we normally just send it off to pathology and move on to the next case. Well, we should take ownership of the tissues that we are sampling to ask some really fundamental questions. What is going on in the immune environment of the pleural fluid in a patient with mesothelioma? What is going on in the lymph nodes of a patient with sarcoidosis that can, we can learn about the etiology and pathophysiology of sarcoidosis, which remains unknown 65 years later after it was first described? Instead of just making a diagnosis and being satisfied and passing those patients on, we need to say that we have access to these tissues and to learn the techniques to analyze these tissues to be able to provide answers for our colleagues or together with our colleagues. Go back to leadership. Do you think there's value in like courses and MBAs, et cetera, like this? Is that something you feel that's helpful if you're not going down a research track? Yeah, I mean, I, it's a good question. Uh, one, our, our current section chief, you and I were just talking about a few minutes ago, Saman Rafek just uh, got his MBA. So I think there is a value uh, in some advanced training. And I do have, you know some colleagues, Kevin Kovitz in Chicago, 
Lonnie Armis and others who have had an MBA and it's helped them in their leadership development. When I first became division director at NYU, I was provided an executive coach. And once a week, we met for a couple of hours and essentially had an intensive training in leadership over a course of a year, including, which was very interesting, a 360 degree review of me where he interviewed dozens of people that I worked with and then anonymously gave me back feedback about what the perception of me and my leadership capacity was after my first year. So there are lots of different ways to obtain training. We have leadership training programs here at NYU Langone Health that train people to who want to have more leadership skills. There are online courses, obviously, that you can take this to. So honestly, there's nothing like on-the-job training <laughs> and experience. If anyone wants to be a division director, I think the best way to learn is just do it and know that it's going to take you a few years. I'm now finishing year seven, Mark, and I'm only now feeling my feet are underneath me in terms of doing a good job. Where do you see the future of IP training? Do you think we have too many fellowships? Are we producing too many people for the current job market or we've got it about right? I think we have too many fellowships and I think we're producing too many people. And I think we haven't really well defined what an interventional pulmonologist is and does. And understand that it's like a Venn diagram that no two interventional pulmonary positions are exactly alike. Some people may be doing some science. Some people may be doing more administration. Some people may be doing more diagnostics. Some people may be doing more therapeutics. Some people may be doing more lung transplant work. So I think that it's important that there isn't one model for what interventional pulmonary looks like. And that's how we're going to provide ourselves value and create positions and create a need for us at institutions across the country. I think there's been a proliferation of programs in part because um, it's nice to have a fellow working with you, right? It's nice to have the help and the institutions want to do this. And there are a lot of diagnostic procedures to be done. I think the biggest concern I have is if you want to have a comprehensive fellowship program, are you really going to have the numbers and the quality of the procedures that you're exposing your trainees to, to make them well-rounded, well-educated trainees at the other end of their training year? And are they going to be able to use those skills in positions when they graduate? So I think that we already are looking very carefully uh, at programs and making sure that they're training people adequately. I think we have to look more carefully at divisions and institutions to see if we can be creative in what these positions might look like. And they may be hybrid pulmonary interventional pulmonary or critical care interventional pulmonary uh, programs, even potentially palliative care interventional pulmonary. You could imagine accommodation therein, partnering with with industry where lots of developments are occurring and maybe there might be joint ventures between academics and industry to fund individuals who may have a foot in foothold in each area would be a really interesting way to go uh, in the future as well. I'm biased. I think the future is going to be in the fact that we have access to a lot of unique areas of the body, the pleural space, the airway, the lung parenchyma, uh, the lymph nodes, and in the future, I believe that we're going to be delivering a variety of different therapeutics in this area and using our techniques to monitor the both positive and negative effects of this local therapeutic delivery. I think we're going to be combining imaging, novel access technologies, and novel therapeutic technologies all together uh, in this sort of hybrid position. And we're going to be working a lot of overlap with our interventional radiology and thoracic surgery colleagues in this domain. I don't know where the field is going to be going beyond that, but I'm really excited for where we're going right now. And again, I want us to be really mindful that we have to be careful as we develop new technologies 
that we're thinking about them, developing them in a, in a careful and thoughtful way, and not just adopting technologies for technology's sake. Thank you very much. That was very enlightening um, and very helpful. We appreciate your uh, insight and experience. Thanks, Mark. Have a great day.